I want to read an introduction now, so just forgive me as I read this to you. I just found it very, very helpful when we're talking about Philippians. The word happiness evokes visions of unwrapping gifts on Christmas morning, strolling hand in hand with the one you love, being surprised on your birthday, responding with unbridled laughter at a comedian, or taking a vacation in an exotic location. Everyone wants to be happy. We make chasing this elusive ideal a lifelong pursuit, spending money, collecting things, and searching for new experiences. But if happiness depends on our circumstances, what happens when the toys rust, loved ones die, health deteriorates, money is stolen, and the party's over? Often happiness flees and despair sets in. In contrast to happiness stands joy. Running deeper and stronger, joy is the quiet, confident assurance of God's love and work in our lives. That he will be there no matter what. Happiness depends on happenings, but joy depends on Christ. That's a great introduction, because if you know the book of Philippians at all, you'll know that one of the mega themes throughout the letter is this joy that Paul speaks about. So what I want to do this morning is run through a couple of things. One is take a look at Paul's background briefly. Then I'm going to take a look at the context of the book of Philippians. And then we're going to take a look at why it was written. And that's where we're going to end off today. Okay, so we shouldn't be too long, but what I'm doing is laying a foundation and setting an introduction for the book before we go into it full steam next week. So, let's get into this. We're going to look, if we're looking at the background, you need to take a look at Paul's lifeline. That's what I think, not his lifeline, let's not tell his future lifeline, but uh, at his timeline in terms of his life. If There it is. I'm not going to go into the great and distant past of Paul's life, but what I will say this, and I was explaining it to Sasha earlier on, was that Paul wasn't always Paul. Paul was Saul, and in the Bible, it's quite common when God has done something incredible and and life-changing and completely path-altering in someone's life that they got a name change, and we know that Jacob became Israel, and we know that Saul became Paul, Uh, we know that Abram became Abraham, so there were several examples where God just did something which was unprecedented, and the person's name changed, and... um, And this was one of those occasions where Saul was one of the biggest, you know, he was a Pharisee. He was a good Jewish teacher Pharisee. A good guy, not a bad guy. Painted as a bad guy. Why? Because he would go around executing Christians, which sounds like a bad thing. Because it is a bad thing. But in his mind, it wasn't a bad thing. In his mind, he was doing the right thing. Because there was this little sect 
of people that had risen up, and they called themselves the way. They were these Christ followers, these little Christians that were starting to grow and float around and start spreading stories about this Jesus and how Christianity is, is something that's, that's tied to Judaism, but it's a little bit different. It almost supersedes it. That's what they're kind of teaching. And so he saw this as a threat to what he understood and knew about being Jewish. And so in his righteousness... He was doing God a favor by stamping out the way as much as he could. And he was there when Stephen was stoned, holding the coats for people so they wouldn't get any blood on their clothes. So they wouldn't crinkle their jackets while they were stoning someone to death. You know, he was there going, good job, guys. Come on, high fives, everyone. And it was at that time, at the peak of his Christian kind of killing life, that one day he was riding into a city of Damascus and suddenly something happened. His defining moment happened and there was a bright light. And, you know, he didn't walk with Jesus when Jesus walked. He wasn't one of the disciples who came and he saw and he heard the teachings. He saw the miracles uh, and, and he was there at the resurrection. He wasn't one of those guys. He was on the other side saying, no ways, this is rubbish. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to listen to this. I'm not going to watch this. And, uh, and so that's why he did what he did. But then on this road to Damascus, he literally fell off his horse onto the road, blinded. And there was a voice that came from heaven and it said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because, you see, he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus had come to take away the sins of the world. He thought it was just a Jewish man who claimed to be something he wasn't, and then he died. But all of a sudden, Jesus himself, the risen Jesus, appeared to Saul. And then you can't really deny that he exists when that happens. And, uh, and God revealed Jesus to, to Saul. And he had to go, and uh, for a few days he was blind, and God gave him directions to a house he had to go to, so his his servants and that led him to the house. Um, And then, long story short, something completely changed. He was fasting for for three days, I think it was, and, and something like scales fell off his eyes. And he realized the truth, and he was never the same. And his name was then changed to Paul, who became the Apostle Paul, Um, who then went on to do incredible things. We'll speak about those in a moment. But amongst those things was to write, to to go, to teach, to preach, to write letters, to strengthen churches, to evangelize. He probably did the single, out of any one person in the Bible, he probably did the most out of any person in the Bible in terms of stuff that he did. Um, Because God said, you, you wanted me to suffer now I'm going to show you what it, what it means to suffer, but for my sake. And he did suffer. And he suffered many things in terms of shipwrecks and beatings and imprisonment. Um, but you know what? Here's the amazing thing. He counted it all as joy for the privilege of being able to share that Jesus was in fact the Son of God come to take away the sins of the world. So it's an incredible story. I'm going to pick it up right there. I didn't mean to go into that whole backstory. 
But let's take a look here. So the, the number in brackets is his rough age, okay? It's not the year AD. That's roughly his age. So he was about 30 years old when that whole thing that I just mentioned happened. So before that, he was a Pharisee, he was a teach, teacher, and he was a Christian killer. But at the age of 30, he had that dramatic conversion. Now, I'm just going to skip right to the end of his life. He lived to be about that age, roughly 61, 62 years of age. And it was at that age that he was imprisoned in Rome for the second time and then was ultimately beheaded by Nero. Many of us have heard of Nero, um, the emperor uh, at that time in Rome, uh, a completely evil man, but anyhow. And so there's kind of the start of his Christian walk and there's kind of the end of his Christian walk. But taking a look here, I know I'm jumping around a bit, but you'll understand why in a second. It was at this time, during his first Roman imprisonment, where he was about 55 to 57 years of age, where he wrote a few of the epistles, which are the letters, uh, which included uh, Philippians. And he wrote others at that time as well, uh, Ephesians and others that you would have heard of, Philemon uh, and those sorts of books. So he was, he was actually in prison there for several years. And during that time, he would, he would speak and he would have someone write down what he was saying to the churches, because those are all churches he wrote to that he had already been to, that he had either established or he had strengthened or he had um, brought correction and teaching to, and now he was writing to them and saying, hey, I remember this. Why don't you try this? Here's a new thing. I've heard that there's quarrels among you. Why don't you? And he would instruct and he would teach and he would teach. So the portion that Sarah used earlier from Corinthians, exactly the same. It was his letter to the Corinthian church. Um, and he was writing about how generous they were in their giving. Um, so these are all, most of the New Testament was written by Paul, um, and a lot of it while he was in prison. So, let's skip. Oh, no, I pressed the wrong button. Elaine, help me. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yes, great. Excellent. Okay. So, now, there was, a, there was a gap between the time that he had this dramatic conversion and the time that he had his first missionary journey. I'm not sure if you heard about that. If you look in the Bible at the back, you're always going to see, after Revelation, what are you going to see? Anyone who's ever got that far? Maps. Anyone? Okay. Okay. Saki's read his Bible all the way to the maps. Okay. And that's when you know you've done, you've done it. You've really, I mean, contents to maps and you've, you've done this thing. So if you look there, you will find those. And in the maps, you will always see certain maps. You will see Paul's first missionary journey, Paul's second missionary journey, third missionary journey, and his journey to Rome. Uh, those are the four incredibly important trips that he took, Paul. And so you can see the time there. So he was about 30. And then when he took his first one, he spent about 10 years uh, teaching, preaching, getting to know the, the, the other apostles, the disciples, um, learning from them, all of that sort of thing. And then he decided, this thing's got to go bigger. It's all fantastic that it's here, but let's make this thing go a little bigger. And um, let me show you something very quickly. I know this is a bit of a history lesson, but I hope you can cope with that. Eh? Okay, this is going to be helpful. Take a look there. That's where Jesus was, right? When he walked the earth, he was about, he, he went maybe as high as that and went as low as that. Okay, that's how he walked. He was never really 30, 30 miles 
outside of Jerusalem. That's the distance of what he did. And that's where he spread uh, his teachings and where he did his miracles, where all these things happened. And then when he ascended, or just before he ascended, he gave us the Great Commission, which was to do what? Go into all the world. Okay, go Jerusalem, which was cool because that was easy. They were there. Judea, which wasn't too bad. I mean, that's just like down the road. Samaria, that's also, it's not actually there, but it's also really close. And then the rest, just in case people got it confused, to the ends of the world. Okay, so just in case you think this is just for you, it's not. This is for the whole world, okay? You just got to start here, and then you got to move out. But you know what happened? Once Jesus ascended, and the apostles were bringing their teaching, do you know where they concentrated everything? Just there. So Paul saw that and said, what on earth? How does this work? We know what we've been commanded to do. I didn't believe this at first, but Jesus has spoken to me, and you've told me about this, these words that he spoke to you just before he ascended. He said to you guys, didn't he say to you guys, you need to go into all the earth and make disciples, baptizing them, and have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit going to Jerusalem and Samaria and all the ends of the earth? He, he said that stuff to you guys, didn't he? Yeah, no, he did say it to us. Well, why aren't you doing it? And it's almost as if nothing was really happening. And I'm not saying that nothing was happening, but it's almost as if like not enough was happening. And God said, you know what, Jesus, we need to speed this thing up a little. This is it. You know, we asked them to do this, but they're just sticking in this little circle. We need someone who's going to get out there. And it was like, okay, I've, I know someone, Paul. Are you kidding? Paul, the guy who's killing us. Yeah, that guy. Why don't we just, why don't we just reach him? Because he's got what it takes to do what we need to do. All right, cool. Let's do it. And Jesus met Paul. I'm not saying it happened like that, but it's kind of my imagination. But then, so then Paul takes this mission seriously. He's not going to be like, okay, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, cool, I get it. Like, he's like the ends of the earth. And I don't know if you know this, but at that stage of world history, Rome was the world. When they spoke about the world, what they really meant was the Roman Empire, because it took up everything. It was everything. It's all they knew. It's everything they conquered. Um, That was as big as the world was to them at that time. They were the strongest superpower in existence at that time, Rome. And uh, it doesn't actually have it here, but Rome looked something like that. So it was pretty much, well, it was massive. Um, And if you take a look here, you'll see on the left-hand side here, first, second, third, and voyage to Rome. So you'll see on his first missionary journey what he did. He immediately goes there, goes there. Comes back, comes back. So it's, it's a couple of years, eh? Look, you can't take a flight. You've got to sail and just hope the wind's right. You've got to sail and hope you don't get shipwrecked. It's, it's, it's a big deal. Um, what he was doing had never been done before. And then on his second journey, and this is the important one we'll focus on in a second, uh, in purple, I, I don't know if, can I see it? Can't see the starting point. No, 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 no. Okay. All the way, all the way, all the way, all the way. Can you see there? Philippi. That was on his second journey. They went to Philippi. So that was, that was pretty far. I mean, that's like weeks and months of traveling by sea. Okay? And then obviously his third journey in red here, 
going. And what he did was he went back to certain churches, strengthened them. Okay, how are you guys doing? I saw you last a few years ago. How are you? How are you? How are you? Come back. Go to a few new places and head back. And then on his last journey, which was a one-way trip because that was where he lost his head, which was this green one over here where he went all the way to Rome where he was executed. And that was done in an incredible way because he, he, very, he was waiting trial in Jerusalem. But he said, hang on a second here. I'm a Roman citizen. You need to do this in Rome. So they had to take him on that journey all the way there. And he got to minister the whole way there for years of traveling. Absolutely incredible. Is this exciting? I'm hoping this makes it a little more exciting for you. It certainly has made it more alive for me. So he did a lot of journeys, and you can see he did more. That's why I say he did more than anyone else. He, he brought the gospel to, I mean, all those places that you can see over there. Let me move on. Okay. So when he was 39 to 41, his first journey took a couple of years, and 44 to 42nd, he took a second uh, journey, and it was there at the age of around 46 that Paul established the church in Philippi. We'll get into the detail of that in a sec. And then his third missionary journey uh, when he was 48. So he literally just got back from years of traveling and then left again uh, for, for a few more years, left for another five years on his third missionary journey, going as far as he did. So this guy put in the hard work. Uh, he took it seriously. When Jesus said, go, make disciples to all the earth, he was like, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Um, and if it wasn't for him, I honestly think we, we wouldn't be around. Uh, there were many churches that probably wouldn't be around today all over the, the planet because of these journeys that Paul took. So that's why he is so uh, respected in church circles. Okay, so let's see where we are here. All right, cool. That just gives you some timeline on Paul. I'm going to move swiftly on from that and go to context. You don't mind that staying on behind me. So so now you know the background in terms of Paul's background, where he came from, what he was like, when God touched him, what he did after God touched him, and then ultimately uh, his death. But he had an incredible life. But why did Paul write specifically to this church in Philippi? It's worth looking at. You know, that's in modern day Greece, uh, in case you just want to want to get a reference in your mind. Um, and does his writing to that church have any significance to us 2,000 years later in Hrafrenet? I believe it does. But before we get to how this letter can change your life, I want to look at some details that are good for you to know before we get into this. Don't worry, it's not so much on the history and geography right now. Uh, we're moving on a bit, but the details are a good thing because the details give you a fuller picture. You see, without it, you just read a verse in Philippians and you say, you know, uh, for me to live and to die, uh, for, for me to live is Christ, to die, to live is Christ and to die is gain, okay? And you say, oh, okay, well, that, that's, a, that's a great verse. So he, he took this thing seriously. But if you don't understand the context and the details, if you don't understand where he's coming from, who he's writing to, why he's even writing those words, it, it loses some of its, its punch. Uh, every verse does. And so I'm going to look just very briefly at some of the details that give you that fuller picture, picture and help you to make sense of what's written and what it means for us today. Okay. 
So these letters, as I mentioned, we call them books, the book of Philippians, the book of Ephesians, because they are small books in our big Bible. Um, But obviously in that day, there were letters that were distributed. He would write them. They would go there. They would come to a church exactly like this, and someone would stand up and they would read the letter. Here's a letter from Paul, everyone. Uh, Gather around, gather around. And and they would read this letter from Paul. I don't know if they did it in a four-part series as well. I'm not quite sure what their situation was. But one way or another, they read these letters from Paul to the entire congregation. And not just the church in Philippi, because it wouldn't have just been one gathering. It would have been a few gatherings. So we've got to pass these letters on. Let's make copies of it. And then they say, you know, this stuff isn't just good for us. We need to get this to some of the other churches, you know, or someone comes and hears it, but they're visiting from another church. I need to hear, our church needs to hear that as well. Well, you know what? Make a copy. Postnet. Okay. No, write it out, every single word. And then you would take it. And these things just traveled and spread like that. And they were read from church to church in those areas. Um, But in all his letters, Paul is giving instruction. He's giving correction to false teaching. He is rebuking believers and he is teaching. But the book of Philippians is absolutely unique because he doesn't do that in this book. You see, in this letter, he's not addressing issues in the church for a change. So instead of seeing him as a teacher, a preacher, a missionary, you get to see a different side of Paul by looking at this letter, and you get to see a personal, friend side of Paul. So it's obvious that the believers in Philippi had a very special relationship with Paul. So I guess it's not surprising that his letter to them is so personal and so affectionate. But I don't know if you're asking yourself this question in your head yet, why? Did he have such a connection with that church? Didn't he go to lots of churches? Didn't he visit loads of churches? Why? Why is this the only letter that he wrote that is personal? It's like a friend letter. It's not like a, like a church teaching letter. And let me give you the answers for that. One of the answers, there's a couple, why it's so personal is because this was the first church that Paul planted. This one wasn't the first church he visited, wasn't the first church he strengthened and encouraged, but it was the first church that he went to a place he didn't know anyone. He had to meet people. Once he met them, he had to convince them that what he was saying was actually true. Once a few people believe that, we can get together and start meeting regularly. So this isn't an easy thing to do, and and he did it. This was his first ever church plant. Not only that... And not only that, this was the first church ever established on the European continent. So this was a big deal. This church was, at the time, it was quite a wealthy church. So it was a, it was a great city, uh, had a lot of wealth, a lot of gold and silver, um, and uh, it was a fantastic city in that sense. But this was a special church because it was his first plant. And I get that. I mean, for me, this isn't a church plant. I didn't plant this church. I wasn't around when this church was planted. People came and laid the roads that I get to drive on now in terms of this church, which is incredible and it's a blessing for me. But for me, this is the first church I've got the opportunity and the privilege to lead. And so when when I see that it's Paul's church first, that he, first church that he planted, I go, I, I get that. 
That is special. That is really awesome. You know, I, there is something different about that. And even though I'm not Paul and this isn't Philippi, you know, I would feel a similar way about our context over here. But then there's something deeper than that. Yes, first church planted. Yes, first church in European continent. But then there's something deeper, the people. This is critical. Why do they seem to have such a special place in Paul's heart? For this, I'm not actually, funnily enough, I'm not actually going to get into Philippians at all today. So so don't worry about writing any of those things down. But what I'm going to do now, we've explained a bit of the background, explained a bit of the context. Now what I want to do is just take a look at the start of the church. Why was this church so personal? so affectionate towards Paul and why was he so affectionate towards them and to see that we need to see the beginning of the church and now if you have a Bible you can turn there but Acts chapter 16 is where we see the beginning of this church you don't have to read it it's going to come on the back here anyway but I'm just telling you where it's going to come from so Paul had a couple of companions Uh, you might have heard their names Silas, Timothy, John, Mark And they were led to Macedonia. Now, Macedonia, I wonder if that map's close by. Take a look there. Okay. Okay. So they were led there. You might have heard the story. I won't go into the detail of this one. Uh, But they were sailing and... God prevented them from going where they wanted to go. And the Holy Spirit prevented them from going to another direction until Paul had a dream. He had a dream about someone dressed like a Macedonian. In other words, kind of like a Greek guy. So, I mean, these are just artists' impression. But here's Paul. And he, he doesn't know where to go. Everywhere he goes, he feels the Spirit of the Lord saying, not here, not now. Okay, that's fine. I'll go here then because I've got to spread this good news. This is important to me. No, not here, not now. Okay, uh, well, I don't know where to go anymore. And then he, he lies down one night. He has a dream. And in the dream, there's someone in, in Greek clothing that's saying, come to us. Yeah, come here. So he concludes. He tells the other people the dream, the people he's with, John, Mark, and Silas, and Timothy. He tells them, he says, this is what I had. And they said, you know what? Let's go with that. Don't you love that? Don't you love that it's like no one's really that clear? It's kind of like, hey, that sounds like God. Let's do that. Um, They're not sure either because that's how we are today as well. Isn't it like that with our own futures? Uh, We try this and then it doesn't work and we try this and it's like, no, no, that doesn't feel right. And well, this could be God. Let's try it. You know what? That's why I've said many times before, God can steer a moving ship. Okay, just do something. Don't wait around until you get a clear thing from God because even that dream wasn't clear from God. They just said, okay, no, it sounds like it's something God would say. Let's do that. And that's exactly what they did. And they went and they sailed to Macedonia and, um, and they landed there at a, at a little port city called Neapolis. And then from there, they traveled on foot to Philippi. So Paul's strategy, always the same. Okay, now remember, this is his second journey, so he's been around the block. He knows this stuff, okay? He, he knows what works and what doesn't work. So when he gets into a new port, he pulls up in his ship, gets out, he's tired, uh, but as soon as he recovers from that, he goes and he finds what? A synagogue. He's looking for Jewish people now because Jewish people are the most likely to understand 
this thing about Jesus because it's in Jewish scripture that when they prophesy the coming of the Messiah. So, so his job is made a little bit easier because he can go to them and say, you know this thing about that all the prophecies point to the Messiah? Well, guess what? He just came. And his name was Jesus. And they can explain it. And you know what? Some people will be furious and some people will be, wow, let me hear more about this. And they would follow him and they would become followers of Christ after that. So he would always seek out a synagogue. But here's the problem. In Jewish culture, and I think it's still like this today, you need to have 10 male Jews in order to constitute a proper meeting. And there wasn't 10 male Jews in Philippi. So he couldn't meet there. So he's now looking, hey, where's the meeting place? Where are all the Jews getting together? What's happening here? I want to fit right in. And he gets there and there's not anyone. So he says, okay, well, there's got to be someone here. So then he looks and he goes, and they find Jewish ladies basically having a prayer meeting at the riverside. And he starts there. And there's an influential lady in that gathering, and her name is Lydia. And she's a wealthy fabric merchant from Asia. And she hears what he has to say, and she says, I believe that. And she becomes the first person in Philippi to believe Paul's message and to walk with him. She's the first person who was a part of the church that he started there. Is that exciting? That's awesome, eh? Okay. All right. Glad you're still with me. So he meets them at the prayer meeting. Then something happened very soon after that. This is the best picture I could find of it. Is that now he's... Now, remember this. The whole story of Philippi and establishing the church there happened within days at a stretch, a couple of weeks. He wasn't there for a long period of time. But he got there, he looked for the synagogue, he couldn't find it, went to the river, found some Jewish ladies praying, spoke to them, met Lydia. And then he's walking and he's preaching and he's talking and he's meeting people. And uh, all of a sudden they find they've got this one woman who's tailing them. And their group has got this lady. And that's why I think it's such a great picture. Here's this lady and she's just going... Ah, and she's following them. And you know what? She's a slave girl who's a fortune teller. So she's like a Long Island medium. Okay, she's like that chick. And she's now fortune telling and she gets paid loads of money. But because she's a slave, she doesn't get to keep the money. So her masters keep the money so they make a good living from having this lady because she tells the future. She reads people. She does that sort of thing. And so she's following them because she's got a spirit inside of her. And you know, even the demons acknowledge that Jesus is real. Do you know that? They know that he's real. Uh, They know that he's the son of God. And so she had a spirit inside of her that was saying, listen to these guys. Listen to these guys. They're telling you the truth. They're telling you about the son of God. They're telling you about Jesus. And and you think, well, that's good advertising, right? Any advertising is good advertising, so this can't be a bad thing. But it became such a disruption to their meetings that Paul, out of absolute frustration... He just turns around and he says, in Jesus' name, get out of her. And the demon leaves her. And she can no longer tell fortunes. She can no longer read people. She's no longer worth any cash. And so what do you think her owners did? They got angry. So they took Paul and his companions and they dragged them to the magistrate. And they said, these guys are stirring trouble in the city. And so the magistrate said, looks like the, it looks like you're right. Had them stripped, had them beaten hard, 
had them thrown into prison, not just prison. He says to the jailer, take extra special care of these ones. And he throws them in the deepest, darkest part of the prison, beyond. So it's the inner prison that he gets sent to. So that's where the people who are killing and raping, it's like the serious, serious dregs of society are living in that that inner prison where you're in stocks, you're literally bound by your hands and by your feet. You can't do anything. So... Let's put a magnifying glass, and I'm going to do this very quickly. We're going to close with this. Can I have the worship team? You guys can come up while I'm, while I'm reading this. Now, if you're going to turn anywhere in your Bibles, turn to Acts 16, and I'm going to read a very short passage of Scripture, which puts a magnifying glass on this, and this is where I'm coming into land this morning. Now, remember, they've just been thrown into the inner prison. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, Stop, don't kill yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, The jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they believed in God. That's incredible. It's just impossible to know how God's going to lead you. They only got there. They only got to that family because they were arrested, because he lost his temper, because he cast a demon out of a fortune teller that was following them. I mean, you couldn't have planned that any better than it came out. And it's absolutely incredible because this family became the rest of the church that started in Philippi. It started with Lydia and perhaps one or two of the other ladies, we're not sure. And this jailer's household, which is not just family, a household is servants and all that sort of thing. Um, that, that came to know Christ in this incredible way. So, I want us to do something. Let's stand this morning. As I was preparing, I felt led to do this. And um, worship is powerful. Some of us go, mm-hmm, yeah, it is. And some of us go, is it? Worship is powerful. It's an incredible gift, really, that God has given us to be able to worship Him. And this story is an amazing story because we see what Paul does, and this is his unbreakable joy. This is the thing. He's been flogged, he's been beaten, he hasn't done anything wrong. He's been put in the inner cell. I mean, he's bleeding. He's, he's there with rats that are licking up his blood. 
like he's not in a good space. His feet are in stocks. And what are they doing at midnight after they've been thrown in the jail? It's amazing. And we come here sometimes on a Sunday and we just want to sing our three songs and hope that the instruments get them right and hope that the sound is okay. Well, I also hope that the sound is okay. And I also like it when the instruments are right. But I think sometimes we lose the point, really, of worship. And obviously it's to glorify God, but here's the amazing thing. When we worship God, somehow we are blessed. Somehow we are moved beyond our point of need and our point of distress. And everything that is weighing us down becomes secondary to the glory of God. And it only happens when we worship. It's not something we need to just breeze past, you know, and just, hey, we can get through our three songs. And so I want to do something. And it's a little bit different. But this evening or this morning, I hope that's okay. Let's believe God for some breakthroughs this morning. You know, when I was singing that song, because I knew what I was going to be preaching on, I was singing this song that we're going to sing now, 10,000 Reasons to Basically Give You Praise. And I was thinking of Paul in his jail and just thinking, man, that's, that's joy. That's not happiness. That's the deep, quiet confidence. That's not a fleeting thing that's saying my circumstances are shocking. And so, you know what, maybe, and I don't want this to be uncomfortable for anyone, but we're going to sing the song and you can do what you want in terms of you can sit or stand. You're only going to get out of this what you put in. Let me just put it that way. But what I want to do is take a look at my circumstances because there's very few of us in here that don't have circumstances that are up against us in some or other area of our lives. And too often those things dictate and they rule the way we think and the way we live. And this morning we've got just a little window, just a little gap, a little opportunity to shift that focus and to worship God. Father, you are awesome. God, you're amazing. You're incredible. Lord, it is such a privilege to be called your child. Father, I thank you, Lord, that, that you are just the most amazing father that there could possibly be. Thank you, Lord, we are in the palm of your hand. Thank you, Lord, that nothing happens, Lord God, that you are not aware of, Lord God. You are aware of every circumstance in every person's life in this room, Lord God. And Father, I pray that we, like Paul, would find an inner strength, Lord God, in you. Lord, that could help us to worship you through a difficult time. Lord God, we, we, we want to be able to be solid and stable, Lord God, through a difficult time, knowing that our hope is anchored in you and not to our circumstances. Lord God, give us that inner, deep, dependable, unbreakable joy that can see us through every situation. We ask this of you, Father God. We need this in the name of Jesus. And just, I want to pray for some people now because 
There was a question that was asked. And the jailer, you know, they knew Paul. They knew of Paul. He was, you know, he'd only been there days, but he was famous already as the guy who was going around preaching this thing of Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the one who came to take away the sins of the world. And he was already well known. So when the the jail walls rattled and when everyone was broken free, the first thing that he said to Paul was, Sirs, What must I do to be saved? And there was an answer that Paul gave, which stands today. Do you remember what that answer was? Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. There's no hoops. There's no conditions. That's it. Not believe that Jesus was a real person because that's historically proven. That's not even debatable. But that Jesus was who he said he was. That he was the son of God. Come to earth to take away the sins of the world.